0: I'm going to talk about enacting differently mobile rights to space and the choreography of encounters between the cyclists and the walkers. So, um, in common with the last presentation, um, the ultimate issue is very much about accommodating differently mobile rights to space. Um, but this time, I'm um, almost looking at the, the other types of um, spaces that the cyclists have to share with others. Um, So, the first observation would be, in terms of legal rights, actually cyclists are not badly off. Um, But the rub is that they have to be choreographed with all these other different kinds of users who actually want to do public space in different ways. Um, But the fact is that, as with any legal right, cyclists' rights to space are only as meaningful as they are considered legitimate by others. Um, and this legitimacy is important because this can make it easier or harder for you to actually enact your right. And this could be just a, a tacit acceptance, right through to reciprocal norms of goodwill. So, this means communicating and persuading the differently mobile others of the legitimacy of your right is actually vital. And not only in practice, not only in principle, sorry. Um, but as practice in every single encounter is something that has to be um, worked and reworked all the time. But as we've heard already, the legitimacy log- of cyclists have often been undermined by associations with deviants, um, for example, charges of acting irresponsibly in encounters with others. But what counts as responsible or not is a boundary that's negotiated and contested through repeated everyday encounters and often through mundane and taken for granted practices. So my aim in this paper is been to dig a bit deeper into the key times and spaces of these differently mobile encounters, particularly with walkers, cyclists and walkers, also horse riders, um, to see how this line between responsibility and irresponsibility is actually drawn and struggled over in and through practice. And to do this, um, maybe I'm slightly going to be an outsider here because we're going to go off road and with nobly tyres here, um, and I'm going to es- explore this um, with respect to Scottish outdoor access rights. Um, but bear with me because I think there are broader lessons here. And it's interesting for three key reasons. First of all, in this legal framework, rights are not delineated by place or activity. They apply to virtually all land, and they also apply to any normalised form of transport and there's very much a multi-use ethic uh, purposely underpinning the legislation. Also these rights are explicitly contingent upon acting responsibly and they acknowledge that precisely what is responsible will depend on the circumstances but nevertheless the conditionality of this is still circumscribed through a supporting code. This code is normative, it seeks to frame and to stabilise norms of what counts as responsible um, and actually spends as much time talking about what's irresponsible as well as what is responsible. And this outlines a script for choreographing the encounters between these differently mobile bodies. Um, And the actual code was very sparse on anything specifically for cyclists. Um, but later they brought out a special leaflet that was targeted at cyclists. And just to give you flavour some of them that relate to encounters. Use common sense to avoid accidents. Show care and consideration and make sure your speed doesn't alarm or endanger others. Keep noise levels and potential disturbance to a minimum. Be considerate to other users of the outdoors such as walkers and horse riders. Slow down and alert them to your presence. When narrow paths give way and order them if necessary and take care not to alarm the farm animals of course to kill So this is the official script. What can we say just from looking at this? Um, there is a clear hierarchy of mobile subjects here. Um, cyclists are problematised in terms of their speed and their propensity to cause alarm to even people or animals. Um, and also walkers clearly have a presumptive claim to move and to keep moving in encounters. Also the onus is on cyclists to carry the burden of attentiveness and anticipation in these encounters. And also they have to avoid being noisy, yet ensure others are aware of their presence. And this dilemma is something that I could go into in more detail if there was more time. So overall you could argue that this reinforces notions of appropriate movement in the activity a slow, quiet, and pedestrian, um, which has been a powerful uh, normativity since the days of the Wordsworthy and Wonder developed. Um, I won't dwell on the methodology, but I used four main techniques in this study that's between um, now and 2006. Um, I did some go-alongs, some ride-alongs, interviews on move. I did some head cam video ethnography did some ethnography with extensive field notes, and observed at meetings the local ends were accessed for. So before going into the encounters in detail, it's just worth dwelling on how the, the hybrid state of becoming cyclists actually shapes the encounters, how it shapes the encounters. And at risk of massively generalising, um, it's worth mentioning this hybrid desire of rolling. Um, Easton actually says that the essence of, uh, at least, off-road riding is to keep on rolling. Despite the terrain, the curves, the obstacles, and to roll faster and faster, the ultimate is to roll and never stop. And this, of course, uh, this quest to roll and to keep rolling and to roll faster, affects the speeds and rhythms of off-road cycling practices. and it affects how participants, the conditions that they want to enable um, for finding state of flow for example um, or for mountain biking in particular often participants want to clean a section without dabbing which just means they want to be able to do a particular area of trail without putting their foot down so, The main point is that walkers and cyclists differ in their hybrid capacities and desires. Um, They move differently, have different speeds, different rhythms, and also different experiences and meanings attached to those movements. And they're also definitely vulnerable, uh, which is a similar point to the previous presentation but in the other direction. And this is important because it underpins the scope for conflict and encounters. And it also is important So you can understand what is at stake in the encounters for um, each kind of experience that is sought and what might be conceded. And it affects spaces and mechanisms available for communicating between these differently mobile subjects. So enacting responsibility in practice. Well, there are resonances, divergences and gradients for the respective code. In terms of divergences, um, the main aspect, the the overall impression was that um, this hierarchy of mobilities is not actually so clear cut and what's common sense is not always necessarily um, everybody giving way to walkers. And the participants in the study were very clear that rather than having one mobility that always has right to play, it just depends on the circumstances. Depends on the group size, depends on the trail characteristics, depends on the flow or the exertion of the mobile subject. So you could almost identify, there's a bit of a deal going on here, where if, if each mobility had a trump card, the walkers have weight to weigh, but the cyclists have speed, and both have decided to concede some of our hybrid capacities and desires in the encounter at different times building up these uh, feelings of goodwill and norms of reciprocity and that all sounds very cuddly and nice and obviously it's not that simple. <laughs> um, there are contested grey areas um, and two key ones I want to flag up is slowing down for encounters and giving advance warning of approach. Um, cyclists all acknowledge that these actions must be taken but the question is precisely how and under what circumstances. How slow is slow enough? How far in advance should you decelerate? Um, when and how should you give advance warning? And so, what counted as responsible or irresponsible was ne- negotiated in the counter through a range of bodily techniques and tactics. And these were some were overt, some were subtle, some were spoken, some unspoken, some conscious, and some subconscious. Um, though often exerting their agency through affecting relations, emotions, pleasure, fear, displeasure, guilt. So I'll take walkers and cyclists in turn. The way that walkers sought to discipline the cycling bodies was often through facial expressions and gestures. Um, It could be a smile of acceptance or it could be a dirty look. To signal, I don't like the way you've done this. Um, Gestures such as feeling a heart attack or pointedly jumping out the way, Um, again, uh, signalling you've (laughs) you have inconvenienced me, or perhaps even angered me. Also, verbal expressions. Um, It could be a return of the same load or it could be saying get a bell, or it could be much more of the same things. Also. Um, and this could go right up to more occasional but um, still occurring practices like walkers actually blocking the path and refusing to let walkers actually pass. and the code doesn't actually allow for such a circumstance because there's no circumstance where walkers should have to give way to cyclists. Um, so it just forces them off onto the side and perhaps that's not always possible. And there were also urban myths circulating about walkers who pulled riders off bikes and put sticks and spokes and so on. Although I've never actually met anyone who this has personally happened to, but uh, the stories were uh, were rife. And so these are actually working through signaling, sometimes acceptance, but also fear of the walkers their anger, displeasure. And sometimes they, they worked because the cyclists then felt feelings of guilt, Um, but not always. Sometimes they might just feel alienated um, if they felt they had actually made an effort to approach the encounter responsibly um, and were still met with a negative reaction. That just made them feel alienated. And this was just an example of one participant who was saying, um, because I don't want to frighten people. And there was an oldish middle-aged couple, so I really slowly. I passed them so slowly, and as I passed them, I said hello. Well, sort of when I was still approaching them to warn them, and the woman nearly jumped out of her shoes and sort of over-exaggeratedly put her hand over her heart and looked at me as if I was really, really evil to be on a mountain bike. Even though I couldn't be more polite and said hello as I approached. So the techniques and tactics of the cyclist. Um, One of the interesting ones was the way that they mobilised relative speed. Not just the speed of the walker relative to the mountain biker, but also um, their own speed and deceleration. As they were approaching walkers, it seemed that it was more important to be seen to slow down than actually the speed that was reached. And that was very interesting where instead of doing a gradual deceleration far in advance, sometimes riders would actually choose to break later and more overtly, just to show to the walker that they had actually done something, that they had actually made a gesture, which is slightly perverse, because ideally you would want them to be smooth and in control. Um, Also, uh, a a charm offensive basically, being polite being courteous. Um, Trying not to give walkers an excuse to be displeased. And also the shouting hello in advance. Um, In all cases, bells were deemed uncool, so that wasn't an option. Um, And at the other extreme, quite often they would actually just try to avoid walkers altogether and would choose their times and places. to be able to just be hybrid. They want to be hybrid and not have to actually tackle these encounters at all. So you could say that these work through the signaling of particularly concession of hybridity, control, courtesy, and they're quite anticipatory and conciliarity. Conciliarity. So what these techniques and tactics highlight is that achievement matters. Um, this is attunement both to the social and the material environment and it's also sensory attunement and emotional attunement. I'll we'll take each one in turn. Sensory attunement is necessary um, in terms of many senses, partly through the visual senses, uh, looking out for other users, particularly in certain places like big corners and so on. Also use of the auditory senses um, being alert, what you can hear. Um, judging how others might be able to hear you if you're giving an advance warning. Is it windy? What's the wind direction? And so on. These are actually quite sophisticated. And also, um, being ready for the encounter by bodily comportments, such as hugging on the brakes, um, having a body ready to absorb, impact of stopping suddenly, and so on. Um, and also positioning sticking to one side of the trail as well. And also emotional attunement. An empathy for the fears and desires of others. And this could be judging, for example, how walker may experience the speed of a cyclist. You might know that there's plenty of space uh, and plenty of time to pass, but that may not be enough. You have to understand how the other person would take that um, and it's also judging how much giving way will actually disturb your hybridity versus their hybridity and your experience of it. Um, and in terms of walkers and cyclists being attuned to each other, what was interesting was that being a walker and a cyclist only seemed to help to a limited degree. Um, one participant put it maybe it's just an ability or an inability to relate to people. I don't know. I see another walker and, you know, you're probably and past the time of day and so on. You don't necessarily get that with a biker. And for very good reason, because they can't stop or it's inappropriate or whatever. Because if it's a walker, you're sharing the experience, aren't you? Whereas with a biker, you're not. If I was on a bike and I met a biker, it'd be completely different. I'd be chatting about, well, oh, how would you find the terrain? What's in store for me? And all that kind of stuff. So, it seems to matter the mobility you're doing at the time. To the achievement, even though it does help to some degree to have experience of that other mobility. So it mattered the extent to which walkers are alert to the possibility of meeting cyclists and especially in crux time spaces like blind spots, narrow trails, windy conditions. Um, and there seems to be an underlying assumption sometimes that it's up to cyclists to work around pedestrians and that it's not their job to be alert. Um, and there's <coughs> it also matters how much walkers assume that they are the only ones that are importuned by an encounter. Um, it matters how they are attuned, what cyclists are trying to achieve and where, and thus what they concede in particular gestures of reciprocity. Um, there's no point in having this moral economy where um, you can see something, they can see something. If people don't realise something is being conceded in the first place, um, and also cyclists find that so- not every bit of trail means the same to them, and being give- having a walker give way to them on a technical uphill section is much more appreciated than on flat fire track, for example. Um, but that's expecting certain, laying expectations on walkers. Um, to be attuned to those quite sophisticated desires. Um, But there's little in the code to actually suggest an alternative approach um, to this in terms of walkers. And for cyclists, it matters the extent to which cyclists have their concessions and gestures of goodwill acknowledged. Um, Lack of affirmation or even negative reaction such as a dirty look. When writers feel they've made a major deal real effort, it um, can feed feelings of, well, it won't bother next time then, and slowly the goodwill can be eroded. And it matters also um, the extent to which they realise they have frightened someone. Um, often it seemed that the fleeting nature of the encounter prevented any feedback that's actually crucial for reinforcing particular norms or feelings of goodwill. And either way, cyclists can become pushed more towards this outside or even deviant position. So, in conclusion, the choreography of encounters, while well, it can differ, differ from the script of the code, um, the interweaving of these different hybrid capacities and desires of cyclists and walkers can produce different ideas of what's common sense and these gray areas. And also, it's as much about the sensory and effective attunement between these bodies as it is the spatial-temporal arrangement of those bodies. That's what shapes the boundaries between the responsible and irresponsible in practice. And this raises questions about what enables or discourages the development of attunement between walkers and cyclists. And I'll just give you two points to leave you with. And one is, how does the code enable or disenable various forms of attunement? Um, In this particular code, uh, we might want to think about the burden of anticipation and the burden of attunement. There seems to be quite an asymmetry there. In one sense, because one party is faster and perhaps less vulnerable, that could be a justification for the asymmetry. But um, are there perverse side effects if walkers don't feel it's at all their job to look out for cyclists? And secondly, how and where can attunement between the different mobile actually be developed? Um, Where are the spaces of shared experience, shared sociality for developing this kind of attunement? In terms of on the trail it seems to be quite limited. Um, They move at different speeds, in different rhythms, they stop often in different places. the whole tendency to actually avoid these encounters altogether um, you could argue that doesn't help to develop these norms, because instead of actually um, doing lots and lots of repeated encounters to work through the problems, people are just deciding to uh, work around it. Um, and also there's the reluctant participation of orphan cyclists in institutional frameworks of representation. Um, from national or global organisations, right to local access forums and so on. Um, but obviously, that's an off trail which wasn't being considered. But um, given the limited, given how circumscribed the encounter is, to develop this achievement is perhaps worth paying Thank you. <coughs> Thank you very much.